Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Good morning. Next week, our uh, life groups, which by the way, if you haven't been here since we announced that, we've done a name change uh, on our home teams, on our small group Bible studies. We're going to call them life groups for a while. And, uh, but next week, they will begin a study uh, on a book that Thomas Rayner brought out entitled, I Am a Church Member. Uh, to kindly hopefully en- enhance that study, uh, I'm also going to preach a series entitled Membership ID. I'm not going to preach exactly what you'll be reading in the book, although it will be similar themes. Uh, After the service is over with, if you have not signed up for a life group yet, you can go outside to the connection area, and we have the books available. Uh, The books are $5 if you can purchase one. If you cannot purchase a book, we want everyone to be able to have one. If you can afford $5 for it, that's perfectly great because that'll help us with our discipleship budget. If for some reason you can't afford that, don't worry about it. We want you to have the book whether or not you're attending a small group. Uh, now, me having said that, I'm not trying to give you an excuse and out for not being part of a small group because I think there's value in being in a small group of believers. You just don't get to connect with people at the level that you need to uh, on Sunday morning, uh, and you just don't have prayer partners and that type of accountability. So get a book, though, if you're going to be in a small group or not, because we want you to kind of follow along. It's a very thin book. Uh, you'll only be reading a chapter a week. You could read the whole book in probably an hour if you were to sit down and just try and read it through, but we don't want you to do that. We want you to read one chapter a week. And all I'm going to do today is kind of deal a little bit with an introduction uh, to what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. To help you see the value of a small group, I want to bring up some verses, and this is not what I'm, I'm preaching today in the message, but I do want you to see some verses in the New Testament that I think communicate to us the value of being in a small group, in a community of believers, to where we pray for each other, support each other, care uh, for each other. Uh, in Acts, in the early church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So they were studying the Bible together. They were hanging out together and doing life together. Uh, in the breaking of bread and of prayers, <clears throat> they were doing that type of uh, fellowship. Uh, also, they were taking the Lord's Supper together. It said, and all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. It seems like there's a connection the way all this is phrased. If, if there's a sense of community between believers, as there should be, there's a, more of an all-encompassing impact that comes out as a result of, of that because you see all these signs and wonders being done. It said all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're caring for each other. They're, they're loving each other. They're meeting the needs of each other. Day by day, uh, tending the temple together, going to church together, and breaking bread in their homes. And that's where we have our, our small group Bible studies for the most part. We have a couple that meet here at our facility, but we do meet in homes. And they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God 
And then notice he is having a favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day uh, those that were being saved. So like I said, I think there's this, this growing impact that spreads out from you and I being in community with each other and fellowship with each other, loving each other, caring for each other, where it, it positions us in a way that we're in favor with all people and more people come to salvation as a result of the church being in community as they ought to be. Later on in Acts 4, it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So, so they have this unity in their fellowship taking place. Uh, no one said anything that belonged to them uh, really was their own. They had everything in common. Great power was uh, on the apostles, and they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, and there was not a needy person among them. Next slide. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Once again, they're, they're caring for each other. They're, they're meeting each other's needs. <laughs> Romans chapter 12 tells us this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That kind of goes against human nature, doesn't it? You know what we tend to do? We want to grab honor for ourselves. And yet the Bible tells us we ought to be showing honor, make it a priority that we show honor to, to others. And then one other verse, passage in uh, the Bible. Next, next slide, please. Romans 12 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with, with all. The, the mindset that you and I ought to have is to be so concerned for other people that we rejoice with someone that's rejoicing, we weep with them, if they're weeping, can I stop for a minute and, and kind of challenge you to be part of a small group based upon that statement? You see, you cannot fulfill that statement that command to rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep, unless you're close enough to somebody to know, hey, they've got something to rejoice about. Unless you're connected with someone enough to understand that they've got something to cry about. They're, they're having sorrow in their, in their life. And that's why we need to relate to each other. You might find that out on Sunday morning, but it's doubtful. But by being part of a small group, you will find that out. And you can love and care for each other. That, that's one of the things I think that, that gives evidence. Some people will, will, when you talk about church membership, they'll say, well, I know Christ is my Savior, so I'm part of the church universal. And while that is true, the majority of the things we're told in the New Testament that you and I ought to be about as Christians, we can't do without being part of a local church. Just being part of the church universal, I can't rejoice with you because I wouldn't know you're happy. I have something to rejoice about just being part of the church universal. I can't cry with you and you need somebody to cry with you, weep with you, unless we've got a connection together. So, so I hope those things just kind of encourage you to be part of a small group this time. What we're going to do in, in this series is focus on some aspects of, of church membership that I think will be really, really beneficial for us. The themes that we're going to cover, and we're just going to bring them up on the screen to let you know where we're going 
But next week, I'm going to talk about being a functioning church member. And that's what you'll read about in the book. The week after that, a unifying church member. An unselfish church member. In other words, we're not making church about our own personal preferences. Not about us. We're going to talk about being a praying church member. The, the desire for us to pray, the need for us to pray for each other and to pray for, for our church and our church leadership. A nurturing church member, someone that wants to be sure their family values church. And they're nurturing their family, nurturing their, their friends. And then a passionate church member, someone that understands that church membership is something we ought to treasure. We ought to, we ought to value church membership. <clears throat> last uh, week, Dwayne Kirkendall, a friend of mine, if you were here last week, uh, he talked to us about the transformational church survey. I want to remind you before I jump on into the message, if you have not logged in and completed that online, please do so. Uh, I, I got a couple of emails this week about it not looking like it was confidential because they asked for your name. Well, you don't give them your real name. Uh, and the only reason they asked for your email address is that if they need to get in touch with you for some reason, I don't get it. Our leadership team will not get uh, any of the information. We get it in a bulk number uh, saying this number of people said this, this number of people said that, this number of people said this. Uh, and if you don't worry about them contacting you back, use the church uh, email address or just don't put one but it will go through i, I think either way uh, we paid just a little bit for that we paid a couple hundred dollars for that survey that's not a lot but since we did invest in it, i hope you'll invest in it i hope you'll take time to sit down and take the survey because on the 28th of february uh Dwayne kirkenall is coming back to meet with our leadership team and we're going to kind of unpack all of that and see maybe what it says to us as far as what we need to change uh how how we can be uh uh, maybe a better church uh, and things like that. So please take time and do it. If you can't go online, if you will let us know, we'll get a uh, printed copy to you. I think there's some printed copies available outside on the tables also, and you can turn it back in, and we'll log the information uh, in, uh, or uh, more correct would be Brandy will log it in for you uh, if, if you cannot fill it out online. But when I was meeting with Dwayne, Dwayne made a statement that he alluded to last week that he thinks the biggest challenge that we're having in the church today uh, doesn't have to do with the church members not getting enough information. It has to do that with them not being obedient. In other words, we hear things, we understand God said it, we know it's in the Bible, but we fail to apply it to our lives. And he says he thinks that's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, and he alluded to this book in that day when I met with him, and that's what led us to this study. Uh, this book, I Am a Church Member by Tom Rainer. Today, I want to ask you the question, what kind of church member are you? And as we do that, I, I, I just want you to kind of evaluate your own life. Where you think you fall is, is the type of church member that you are. In, in the introduction to the book, that kind of is a send-off for all the other chapters, Tom Rainer tells a story about two church members. It's entitled A Tale of Two Church Members. And one is his name, Liam. And, and Liam uh, has grown very discouraged at church. And he's meeting with his friend Michael. They, they attend the same church. They're in the, the same small group Bible study. And he's telling Michael that he and his wife, Liam and his wife, are thinking about leaving the church. The reason is... 
He, he says, the church, have you not noticed, Michael, that we've got a lot of hypocrites at church? <laughs> uh, I'll say more about that in a moment. And he even looks at Michael and he says, Michael, the, you, my wife and I are one type of church member, and, you're a, and you and your wife, Michael, you're a different type of church member. And if you read that introduction, you'll discover the primary difference is this. Michael and his wife are engaged in serving. They're engaged in ministry. They're actually doing something at the church. So by actually serving Jesus and others, they're finding a level of fulfillment that someone else that just sets back with judgmental glasses on never finds. I've been pastoring full-time. January, 30 years. I've been called to preach a little bit longer than that, but I went to my first pastorate 30 years ago this past January. In the scenario that he tells about in the introduction, I've seen over and over and over again, because if someone is engaged in ministry, if someone has vested their, their life and their time and they see value in serving Jesus and serving others, then that kind of person is the person that has some fulfillment in their life. On the other hand, if it's someone that just shows up on Sunday morning and they're never engaged in any way, it becomes really easy for them just to look and say, look at all the hypocrites. You know, look, look at all the problems that, that, that exist uh, in, in the church and find a real easy way to try and, try and step out of the church. So as we... Uh, As we kind of go through this thought today, what kind of church member are you? I'm going to do two primary things. Different, different kind of message, I, I understand. But please try and stay engaged with me. I'm going, to cover you, I'm going to cover some statistics to begin with that I think are very vital. And these statistics ought to burden our heart. And then we're going to close by looking at some scripture in 1 Timothy that Paul wrote about his own life. That I think will give us kind of a good model for the type of church member that we ought to be. These statistics ought to help correct the focus of our lives. There's some statistics and statements that Thomas Rayner makes in, in his book that I want to share with you to start with before I share with you some research that I did this week about our own area. <clears throat> Tom Rayner had a survey done in some research between 2004 and, and 2010 of 557 churches. And they designed in such a way, like several polls are, are done by, you know, different organizations where it gives a, a picture of the whole. And what they discovered is this, nine out of 10 churches today are either declining or they're growing at a slower pace than their community. Two-thirds of the people that were born before 1946 are Christians. But only 15% of those born between 1980 and 2000 are Christians. That generation represents the, the millennials. And they're the largest generation in the history of America. With 80 million members. So what I have just told you, that out of a generation of 80 million people, only 15% of them know Christ is their Savior. We have about lost a generation. 
You see why we have work to do as a church. You see why you need to be all that you can be for Jesus, and our church needs to be and do all that we can for Jesus just because of those stats. He he makes some statements also that I want you to notice before I give you some research that I did this week, but he says we're laying the blame in the wrong place because we as Christians tend to say, well, it's the fault of secular culture, it's the fault of politics, it's it's liberal theologians or churches that's the problem, or it's all the legalistic Christians and legalistic churches that are really the problem. But Rainer says in his book, the truth of the matter is all of us as church members need to look in the mirror and recognize we're all guilty of being the problem for these stats that we're looking at. He also said this, that people join churches expecting others to serve them, feed them spiritually, care for them, all the while never engaging to serve others, to help feed others or care for others. We, we join the church, in other words, looking for the perks, looking for what we can get out of it, instead of having the mentality that it's something that we can bring ourselves to bear in the ministry of that church to serve Jesus and benefit the lives of, of other people. He said, we don't like hypocrites in our church, but we fail to see our own hypocrisies. Anybody go to Walmart this week, this past week? Anybody went shopping anywhere this past week? Did you go out to eat this past week somewhere? Some of you go out to eat this past week? I've got news for you. All of those places are filled with hypocrites. All of those places have people at some time or another have hypocrisy in their life. And yet you keep going back, right? You go back and buy, you go back and eat, you go back and invest money. They're in those places that doesn't keep you from going there. So the, the problem is that kind of takes away our excuse of saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, there are. <laughs> but they're hypocrites in every other walk of life that you live in also that you have to deal with. Membership mentality, regrettably, a lot of times is like this, even in our churches. He said, God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. Instead, he placed us in churches to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to learn, to teach, to give, and in some cases, to die for the gospel. That's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Church is not a country club. It's not something you join just to be a part of and see what you can get out of it. It's much more than that. It needs to be much more than that. The stats that I found this week in our local area, some, most of you are probably aware of this. I do some part-time work uh, normally about a day to two days a, a month for the church planning team of uh, the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. Um, I help oversee Caldwell County, Catawba County, Burke County, Alexander County, and Ardell County. Um, luckily, right now, I've only got two church planters in all those counties, so it's, it's not like I, I've, I've got a lot to have to deal with. But that gives me insight into some stats. I can use some of their software and, and access it that maybe you, know, you can't. In the state of North Carolina, in the 2010 census, 
there were 9,500,000 some people. That represents 3,688,000 households. Out of those 3,688,000 households, 67.92% are unreached households. They're not reached with the gospel. They're not attending anybody's church. There's another stat they list that's, that's called the uh, non-evangelicals, not interested households. And what that means is this. There's a percentage of people out there that are not only in church, their mentality is leave us alone. We don't want you to bother us. We don't want to hear about church. We don't want to be invited to church. We don't want you to tell us about Jesus. Just leave us alone. Which to me indicates that maybe the church has wounded a bunch of people. Another stat for North Carolina, only, back up one slide, please. Only 14.59% of the North Carolina households that attend church say they go at least once a month. That's a pretty dark stat, isn't it? Next slide. Caldwell County, 80,000. 192 people, which, by the way, indicates Caldwell County uh, population-wise is in decline because a few years ago we had 90,000 people. There are 31,179 households. In Caldwell County, the percentage of unreached households is 61.5%. In Caldwell County, the number of those households that aren't interested in being bothered at all are 38.84%. In Catawba County, there's 160,920,000 people that represents 60,459 households. The unreached households in Catawba County is 66.53%. The percentage of people in Catawba County that have the mentality of don't come tell us about church, don't invite us to church, we don't want to be bothered about it, we're not interested is 40.37%. In Burke County, there are 89,907 people at the time they did the census. That represents a little bit over 34,000 households. 64.8% of those households are unreached, unchurched. And 39.41% say, don't bother us, we don't want to hear about it. Granite Falls, if you draw a three-mile circle from our church, that means you're going three miles in every direction. There are 5,316 households. This is our backyard. Sixty-three percent are unreached households. Thirty-nine percent say don't bother us. 
with the gospel. Don't bother us about church. Another interesting stat was something that deals with the attitudes that people have predominantly in, in our state. And about 72.93% are people that are looking for recognition. About 68.34% are people that are looking for relationships. They, they've got a need for relationships. 63.86% are looking for innovation, the creators. Something that kind of jumped out to me, and this is not scientific in any means whatsoever because you've got a lot of other factors that come into play, but it is an interesting thing to me that in the state of North Carolina, you have 60-some percent, I think it's around 66%, me going off my memory is not too good sometimes, of unreached households, and you've got a real similar percent of people saying they're looking for relationships. That tells me just maybe we need to do a better job building relationships with people. If we want to win people to Jesus, we better be connecting with people. We better be building relationships with them. It doesn't work just showing up at their house and beating them on the head with a Bible. Now, I mean, saying that, you understand that I'm all about telling people the truth. I'm all about people knowing the Scriptures and telling them the truth. But we're missing people because we have to build some relationships with people. And those percentages, I think, maybe ought to communicate that to us. And what I'm hoping all the time I just spent this morning putting those statistics before you, I'm hoping that will burden you to the point of understanding we need to be all we can as church members. And our church needs to be all we can as a church because the stakes are really, really high. Because there's a mass number of people dying without Jesus. Now, having looked at the stats, I want us to look at some scripture. There are a lot of scriptures that we could have turned to and, and, and looked at uh, because in the Bible, there are several places that show someone being a, a person that's serving Jesus and caring for others and, and someone that's maybe just kind of like a troublemaker or something like that at church. There, there are a lot of Bible verses we could go to. The, the one that God led me to is First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 20. Eventually today, we'll get to the name of two guys by the name of Hymenius and Alexander. And Hymenius and Alexander were the type of church member that was not helping the ministry to flourish. They were not serving Jesus like they ought to. Instead, they were really just causing problems and controversy and, and teaching false doctrine and, and opposing Paul and, and things like that. So we'll get to them eventually. But what I want you to see, hopefully, as we look at Paul writing about his own life to start with in these verses, I hope you'll see a picture in Paul's life of the type of church member that you need to be and the type of church member that I need to be by looking at the, at the life of Paul. Paul starts out by talking about his past. You see, you need to understand, Paul had a past before Jesus. And if you're not someone that studied the Bible a lot, you may have the opinion of the Apostle Paul as being, well, he, man, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. He must have been this really great, perfect individual. And that's why God chose him to go and, and plant churches around Asia Minor. That's why God chose him to write more of the New Testament, because Paul's such a great guy. <laughs> well, here's what Paul says about himself. 
He said, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent of the gospel. In Acts, Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul once again refers to himself as a persecutor. And if you remember the story, he was standing there supporting them stoning Stephen to death in the book of Acts. The word that he used here in, in verse 13 to describe himself as insolent, the, the word in the, there that's used in the Greek means a, a haughty person or, or somebody throwing their weight around. Someone being a bully, kindly at church or with other people. That's who Paul was. Now, you need to get really transparent, at least in your own mind right now. I'm not telling you you need to stand up and tell us all what you've done. But honestly, think about your own life. All of us have a past, don't we? Most of us wouldn't want to stand up and tell about all of our past. I think part of you and I being the kind of church member we need to be, we need to get off our high, holy horse, and we need to remember that we had a past. That we were sinners also. Because that may be why there's around 40% of the people in the state of North Carolina that are unchurched that say, I don't even want to hear about it because we've come across as goody-two-shoe Christians looking down our nose at them. Paul had a past. You and I have a past. Paul goes on and he writes about his salvation. He said, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And when the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul had the kind of past we looked at a moment ago. So if we're thinking about Paul having been a, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, uh, even sitting there and, and saying, yes, yeah, stone Stephen to death and supporting it fully and holding their coats while they did it. If he was a kind of a, of a religious bully going around pushing everybody around, if that's what Paul's life was, we might ask ourselves, how in the world could a holy God save somebody like Paul or us? And Paul tells us, here's how it happened. It was because of God's mercy and God's grace. Instead of God giving Paul what he deserved, which would have been judgment in hell, he gave him grace, which is God giving Paul what he did not deserve and what he could not earn whatsoever. He poured out grace. Paul even said it overflowed. It, it was in a superabundant amount. It's kind of like Paul is saying, man, God had to really extend a whole lot of grace to save me. I can relate to that. Can you? So Paul had a past, and now Paul is saved because God extends a super, increasing superabundant amount of grace in, in the direction of Paul's of Paul's life. Grace and mercy are God's love in action toward us. Paul even said in those verses that he was 
the foremost of sinners that we'll look at in just a moment. Paul recognized that his salvation didn't come because he was Paul. It didn't come because he was such a great guy. Paul is saying, look, I was a sinner. I was a bad person. I was saved by God's grace and mercy. Now, remember what we're talking about today. We're talking about what type of church member are you? What type of church member am I? I'm just submitting to you, we would be better church members if we would be like Paul and we would remember our past and we would remember that we're saved by grace, not because of who we are. That will help us be more of the kind of church members that can reach the lost world we saw in those statistics. So since Paul is saved by God's mercy and God's grace, Paul talks about his purpose. In verse 12, he said, I I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, you kind of boil that down. Paul just said this. God had something he called me to do. There's something God wants me to do. There's a service he wants me to be in. It's about more than just Paul getting saved and then sitting down and saying, thank God I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven one day. Paul recognized that God had called him and given him a purpose. In verse 16, he said, but I received mercy for this reason. In other words, Paul is saying, God saved me from who I used to be for this reason, for this purpose. I have received mercy to this reason that in me, as the foremost, the sinner that he was talking about a moment ago, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's more or less what Paul just said. Jesus saved me, the sinner that I was. He saved me for a reason. He saved me in order that my life might be an example for others who would trust in him. In other words, you might say this. If God can save Paul, God can save anybody. If God can take someone like Paul and change his life from being a persecutor of the church into being a preacher, from being someone that was murderous into being a missionary, into being someone that was planting churches and serving Christ all over the place, if God can change someone like Paul, he can change anybody. You can put your name on it. If God can save you, God can save anybody. If God can save Lynn Parsons, God can save anybody. So the way that fits into us being the type of church member we need to be is simply this. We were lost sinners. We all had that type of past. God saved us, not because we deserved it, not because we're great people, but by his mercy and grace. In response to God saving us by his mercy and grace, we ought to in turn serve him. We now have a purpose in our lives. God wants to use our lives as an example for other people to see and recognize, hey, if God saved you, he he might can save me. That's the kind of church member we need to be. Paul talked about his past. He talked about his salvation. He talks about his purpose. He recognized that God came to save sinners. He didn't just come to save Paul, but he came to save others. And we need to recognize that ourselves. God did not just come into this world. Jesus did not just come into this world to save you. And then he thinks, I've done all I need to do. He came to save sinners. He saved you so he can use you to reach a lost and dying world. There are other people that still need to know. 
Paul's focus is found in verse 17. And as I talk through these things, remind yourself, hey, this is the kind of person I need to be. This is the kind of church member I need to be. I had a past, I was saved, but now God's got a purpose for my life. Paul's focus is this. He says, to the king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In other words, Paul's focus was not, now that I'm saved, my life is about me. Now that I'm part of the church, my life is about me. Instead, Paul is saying, now since God has saved me from my past, by his grace and mercy, and he's given me a purpose, here's the reason that I do it. I don't do it for me. I don't do it for my own recognition. I do it to him. I do it to the king of the ages. I am serving Christ because he's the immortal, the invisible, the only God. I'm living my life to bring honor and glory to him. That's the focus that Paul had. His life was not about himself. It's not about bringing glory to himself. Our lives cannot be be about bringing glory and honor to ourselves. Our church should not be about bringing honor and glory to day three church. Our purpose and our focus needs to be that we're bringing honor and glory to Jesus. And if we will be that type of church member brought together in one body, we can start to impact the lostness that we talked about in those stats. Paul also gives a charge he's writing to to Timothy Timothy was like an apprentice under Paul he had been called in the ministry and Paul is, is mentoring him and Paul writes this to Timothy he says this charge I entrust to you Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies made about you that you may wage the good warfare. Holding the faith with a good conscience. Now you kind of read between the lines and say what Paul just said about himself, that God had saved Paul in spite of who he was and given him a purpose and Paul's focus is now serving Jesus. It's kind of like in turn now, Paul writes to Timothy and he said, Timothy, this is what your life ought to be about. Because Jesus saved you, you now have a purpose. Because Jesus saved you, I'm giving you a charge. In the words like a, it's a military word in the Greek. It's as though you're receiving an urgent command from a superior officer. And he looked at Timothy and he said, you're you're like a soldier that's being placed underneath Jesus. And you need to recognize that and you need to obey what Jesus wants you to do. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He says, since his aim, you're talking about a soldier there, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How many of you have ever been in the military? Raise your, raise your hands. Raise them like this. Y'all be proud. Thank God for you guys that were in the military and ladies that were in the military. So you understand, having been in the military, what it is to have a commanding officer over you. How would it have gone had your commanding officer told you to do something and you just blew him off? (laughs) Oh, that'd been a good day, wouldn't it? You'd probably be burying cigarette butts in six-foot graves. 
be given a toothbrush to go and scrub the toilet. Paul tells Timothy, you need to be like a good soldier. You need to fight a good warfare. We don't talk about this probably enough in church, but you do recognize we're in a warfare. We're in a battle. There are real forces of evil. There's a real Satan. There's a real hell. We're in, we're in a real struggle as we try and serve Jesus. You might start using the excuse and say, well, it's difficult in our culture to serve Jesus. Hey, Timothy lived in a pagan city of Ephesus, and Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, in that pagan city of Ephesus with all the worship of idols and everything else, you need to fight the good fight. You need to hold the faith in a good conscience. You might be thinking, well, but if it, I understand God wants me to do that. Jesus wants me to do that. But all that military stuff you talked about, if I disobey him, I'm not going to have to be digging six-foot graves for cigarette butts or scrubbing toilets with a little toothbrush. No, you're not. It's more serious than that. If we fail to hold the faith in a good conscience and fight the good battle, fight the good warfare, Those 60-some percent of the households in the state of North Carolina will remain unreached if the church doesn't wake up. The 63 or 61 percent, whatever it was in Granite Falls, may remain unreached if we don't wake up and fight the good battle. Those people that say, don't even bother us, we don't want to hear, will never be impacted if we don't figure out how to reach them the right way and fight the good battle and hold the faith that God's given us, the gospel, the faith, with a good conscience. You feel like you're doing that today, the faith that you have, are you holding it a good conscience? Before you answer that, here's really what I think that means. That means that what you know the faith is all about you're carrying it out in your life. So I dare say most of us can't say, oh, I've got a really good conscience about that right now. That means we need to make changes. That means we need to do something to impact the lostness of our culture. Found a quote from a magazine editor uh, that defined conscience as this. He said, the inner voice which warns us that somebody may be looking. In other words, if you're somewhere and you're thinking about stealing something, you think, is there a camera around? I really need to be somewhere. I need to run this red light, hurry up and get somewhere. But I wonder if there's a cop sitting over there somewhere. See, the thing about it is this, that inner voice that warns you that somebody may be looking in the stuff that we're talking about today that's of really, really high value, guess what? Somebody is looking, and his name is Jesus. And he's looking to see if we're the kind of church member that we ought to be. He's looking to see if we're remembering our past, if we know we're saved by grace, it's not because of who we are, that God's given us a purpose that we need to carry out, and our focus needs to be we're living our lives for him. That needs to be what our focus is. And he, he lays this charge out to Timothy. 
And then Paul closes with a warning. I, t- I told you we get to these guys by the name of Hymenius and Alexander, but he says in verse second part, verse 19, verse 20, by rejecting this. Now, what does he mean by rejecting? What did he just tell Timothy to do? He told him to fight the good warfare, and he told him to hold the faith in a good conscience. So, if people reject that, if we reject being a soldier of Christ, serving him, if we reject being obedient to him, if we reject holding the faith in a good conscience in our lives, he said, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. If we ignore the gospel, if we ignore God's call upon our lives, we can shipwreck our faith. We can shipwreck our lives. And if we shipwreck our lives as individuals, because you see, some of you might be thinking, what's my life? It doesn't matter what I do. It does if you're a member of the church. Because if you're a member of the church, as you shipwreck your life, you're also to a certain degree shipwrecking the church and what the church ought to be about. And he gives an example of somebody that had done that. He said, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander. We don't know a lot about them. We do know that Hymenius was teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of all believers. He was saying, oh, that's, that's already over with. It's already happened, already done. So he was standing opposed to the teaching of Paul, teaching false doctrine, stirring up controversy and trouble. We know a little bit less about Alexander, and we're not sure he's the same Alexander that's mentioned later in the New Testament. But if he is, what Alexander was doing was this also. He was opposing Paul by teaching false doctrine. The picture I want you to get is this. We've had a picture of the kind of church member we ought to be in the life of Paul. We remember our past. We know we're saved by mercy and grace, not who we are. We recognize because of that, God's given us a purpose, and our focus ought to be, I'm going to serve him. I'm going to bring glory and honor to him. That's the type of church member we ought to be. The type of church member we should not be is the type of member that's kind of illustrated by Hymenius and Alexander. They weren't really serving. Instead, they were causing controversy, causing trouble, instead of serving. Paul said this, I've handed them over, talking about Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan. (laughs) That's a real positive statement, isn't it? How would you like to show up at church one Sunday and then the preacher say, hey, I've handed you over to Satan so you learn not to blaspheme? That'd make you feel real good, wouldn't it? Go home, tell your family, go get to work, tell your friends that week, well, I've been handed over to Satan. That's what I was told, so I'd learn not to blaspheme. So what's taking place here is this. Paul is exercising church discipline. And he's not doing it with bitterness. He's not doing it with hatred in his heart. It's not like he hates Hymenius and Alexander. He's turned them over to Satan, praying that God would allow Satan to shake them, to teach them a lesson that they would learn not to blaspheme. You see, it wasn't to hurt them, it was to help them. It was to wake, give them a wake-up call, it was to get them back on track. 
Paul gave that as a warning. And it's a warning that maybe you and I need to accept in our lives also because if we're not careful, if we don't hold the faith in a good conscience, we'll shipwreck our lives, shipwreck the faith, hurt the testimony of the church in such a way that it minimizes our ability to impact the lostness that we looked at earlier in those stats. I heard Charles Stanley years ago preach a message, and he said he still feels that that's possible today. He feels like if someone with a pure heart, pure motive, not bitterness, prays to turn someone over to Satan, that they'd learn not to blaspheme, that they'd learn to get back on track, that they'd have a wake-up call and understand they, they need to be the kind of Christian that God wants them to be instead of the one that they've become. He said he believes we can still pray that over people as long as we pray it with the right attitude. So to wrap it up and bring everything back together, what kind of church member are you? Are, Are you the kind of church member that remembers your past? Or have you forgotten there was a time that you too were lost? Are you the kind of church member that bears in mind that you're saved by mercy and grace? It's not because you were a great person, a beautiful person. God said, oh, I love you so much, just come on to heaven. You're lost. Jesus died for you. Your only hope is mercy and grace. We need to remember that. That Jesus came not just to save us, he came to save sinners. And by those stats I showed you earlier, we've got work to do. Are you the kind of church member that has a purpose? Well, yeah, preacher, I've got a purpose. I mean, I, I, I come here on Sunday. Listen, you need to have a higher purpose, a higher calling in your life just to think, than thinking it. Well, it's Sunday. It's time I get them to go to church. We need to be the kind of church members that we wake up every day of our lives hearing a trumpet call from our Savior saying, I've got something for you to do today. I've got a purpose in your life today. I've got something, that someone's life that you need to touch today. Are you the kind of church member that has the right focus? And the right focus is you're making it all about him, not about what you want. Are you the church member that's living in obedience to God's call, God's charge on your life? Are you actually doing something for him? Are you the kind of church member that's taking heed of the warning that Paul gave? That you can shipwreck your life, shipwreck your faith. And in the process, we can shipwreck the integrity that we need as a church to reach a lost and dying world. If we reject holding the faith in a good conscience, being a soldier of Jesus. The statistics that we looked at today, I hope that will correct our focus. I hope that reminds us there's still a lot of lost people out there. There are a lot of unreached homes. And it would be really easy for us today to say, man, you said there's over 3 million homes in the state of North Carolina that, that are unreached. How, we can't do anything about that. 
I also told you there's a three-mile radius. With 5,400 homes. And 60-some percent of those are unreached. We can do something about that. And in the process of doing something about that, we can do something about our county in adjoining counties and our state. If we'll ask ourselves honestly, what kind of church member am I? Am I like Paul? Or am I like some of these others that miss the boat so bad that the only memory we have of them in Scripture is negative? Let's pray. Father, I I pray today that you have burdened our hearts with the statistics that we've looked at. Realizing the lostness of our culture and the people around us. That you'd wake us up from having churches that are like country clubs. Churches are where we just show up looking for the perks and the privileges of whatever we can get out of it. And help us to understand that you want us to be like a hospital for the sick. And you want us to be like good soldiers underneath your instruction, your guidance, your commands. To where we go forth and we hold the faith with a good conscience. And we go forth to serve you and to honor you. And to carry out the purpose you've given us. And to keep our focus upon your glory. Father, I pray today you've opened our eyes. And I pray all of us will evaluate what kind of church member we are. And Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray through Paul's story today, you gave them hope. That someone who is the kind of sinner that Paul was can be saved by your mercy and grace and you can take their life and use it in a great way. But Father, I pray for anyone here today lost in sin that they would see the example of Paul and have hope in their lives and trust in the same Jesus that changed Paul it's in Christ's name we pray Amen Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church we pray that it has ministered to you for more information about our location service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.